Good evening. My name is Simon Levin, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here on behalf of the Public Lectures Committee uh, for this year's J. Edward Farnham Fund. Uh, the Farnham Fund was founded in 1939 by a bequest of George L. Farnham of the class of 1894, a member of his brother, J. Edward Farnham, who was a, in the class of 1890, for the purpose, quote, of providing lectures from time to time by men of prominence not connected with the university. So tonight's speaker fits that description very well. Uh, also, Farnham, who died in 1917, it says here was an explorer, quote, for whom strange people and customs held a fascination, which makes tonight's speaker particularly appropriate because he will speak to us about strange peoples and customs. It's really a great, great uh, personal pleasure for me to introduce Paul. Uh, somewhat daunting to try to describe all of his accomplishments. He has distinguished himself in such a variety of subjects. He's perhaps best known for his public persona and contributions to bettering uh, the welfare of humanity, or at least endeavoring to do so. But he's known, first of all, to me and my colleagues for his scientific contributions. He's one of the leading population biologists in the world, one of the leading ecologists in the world, elected to the National Academy of Sciences not for his public contributions, but for his landmark work on butterflies and on helping to create, along with Peter Raven, the study of the subject of coevolution, one of the most important and active areas of uh, research in ecology and evolutionary biology. Paul's honors are literally too many to list. A MacArthur Fellow, he won the Crayford Prize of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. That's the ecological equivalent of the Nobel Prize. They won the John Muir Award of the Sierra Club, the Tyler Prize, given for distinguished work in environmental sciences. The Heineken Award, the Blue Planet Award, the Gold Medal Award of World Wildlife International. He's a prolific writer with books, three of which are uh, on display in the, and on sale, I suppose, in the back. The Population Bomb, not on display in the back. The Population Explosion, Population Resources and Environment. Betrayal of Science and Reason, which is a recent book that is on display in the back. Many of those books together uh, with his wife, the distinguished scientist and writer Ann Ehrlich, and with John Holdren and others. And most recently, the book that will be the subject of tonight's lecture and is also on display in the back, Human Natures. Paul also has the deepest conscience of any scientist I know, and that has led him to critical work on almost every important environmental problem of the day. Population, resources, environment, most recently, the subject of tonight's lecture, cultural evolution. He is one of the leading spokesmen for ecology in the world, a great friend uh, and a great speaker. So it's a pleasure now to introduce Paul Ehrlich to speak to us on human natures, genes, culture, and the human prospect. Paul.
Thank you very much, Simon. It's a great pleasure to be here because I have a lot of old friends here and even an occasional student, uh, and that makes it very pleasant. Uh, also, I got here with part of the trip being on U.S. Airlines and survived, so instead of the usual lie, saying I'm happy to be here is really true in that, uh, in that case. Uh, and I'm going to harangue you tonight uh, on a topic that's a little strange for some of you who don't know what I and others have been doing for a long time in the areas of human evolution and so on. Not me so much, but I've been teaching it and other people have been working on it. And the reason is that uh, environmental scientists sort of know where, where the world is going. We have a pretty good picture and have had, in a sense, for 20 or 30 years of where it's going. Uh, and like many other areas, the confusion in our minds is why can't what we know get translated into sensible public policy? And this is not uh, a unique thing in the environmental sciences unless you define them very broadly. We are, for example, uh, now being told that it's absolutely essential because of recent events that we uh, get ourselves an anti-missile missile force, which, again, is a sort of thing that the entire scientific community knew for a long time was nonsense, but it's now being pursued again uh, for reasons of human behavior that are not entirely clear, although there's some clarity there. Uh, and one can actually go down a long list of things where scientists looking at things in the public interest know certain things, and those are not translated at all uh, into public policy. And so over the years, I have slowly uh, come to believe, as I think some of my, I know some of my colleagues here have, uh, that just doing more environmental science, honing what we know about how the planet and our life support, not the planet, our life support systems are going down the drain, uh, is not the major place where we want to put our effort. And, for example, Simon and I and many others have been working over the last decade, and I think very well and very productively, with economists trying to look into the economic dimensions of why we behave the way we do, and it working increasingly with other social scientists. In fact, I'm convinced that at the academic end, the main action is really in the area of social sciences rather than directly uh, in the area of the, uh, of the environmental scientists, uh, sciences. And I've had a long-term interest in this area. It actually um, goes back to my butterfly collecting days. Uh, one of the things I did, if the, uh, is the projector on? There we go. Uh, one of the things I did in order to fool around with the Arctic butterflies that I was, that I was really uh, very much into when I was a kid was I took a job with a thing called the Northern Insect Survey and had the opportunity of going to northern Hudson Bay to Southampton Island and dog sledding uh, into uh, uh, a small Hudson Bay post three months' worth of food and doing an insect survey there, living with the Eskimos. Uh, and the Inuit are an incredibly interesting people. I took the opportunity to learn a fair amount, but not a lot, uh, of a non-Indo-European language. When anybody interested in anthropology, of course, that's a, that's a wonderful experience. And talked a lot to the, uh, the process of learning and helping the Eskimos, uh, my Eskimo friends, learn English. Uh, Learned a lot about their culture, was really impressed. In fact, almost went to graduate school in anthropology, but the butterflies overwhelmed me, uh, and uh, I, uh, I actually went into, uh, I actually went into uh, biology rather than anthropology, but I've always retained a big interest in anthropology. So now what I just did was give you a little bit of my history. Hopefully that helps you to understand me a little bit. If you think about it, when you run into somebody and you don't know them, uh, what you often do is exchange a little bit of history. Where were you born? Where'd you go to school? What your hobbies are? What it is? And uh, 
you begin to learn pretty quickly about them that way. You, you make certain conclusions, and they're, often, uh, and they're often correct. And so you can often predict what their behavior is going to be in certain circumstances, or at least do better than if you didn't know them at all. And one of the things that sort of has stunned me over the years of teaching human evolution is how few people in our society, in fact, how few people going through first-rate universities like the Stanford of the East here or anywhere else, uh, <laughs> where uh, you can get all the way to a Ph.D. at Stanford University in the West without having a clue where your food comes from or how human beings got to, uh, uh, got to growing to farming or, in fact, anything about what language is all about and where it, uh, what role it plays in our history and so on. We don't teach this stuff. Uh, and so it's small wonder uh, that we, for example, to take a random example, get a president who can get up and describe uh, basically what happened at the World Trade Center as an inexplicable attack by cowards on American democracy. We don't even teach people history. Uh, and so we find that when we're facing horrible problems like we're facing today, uh, people don't know anything about human behavior or what to expect. I should say that, in fact, Osama bin Laden may very well suffer from the same problem. I think he thinks that attacking the United States in a hideous way and killing a lot of innocent people uh, will cause us in some way to lose our morale and fold. If he knew anything at all about history, he'd know the history of terror bombing. The Germans tried it over London. They failed completely. The, Russia, the Londoners took a lot of casualties, but they got together, became more unified, uh, and uh, went on with the war. The British then in turn tried it on the Germans. Uh, and the, uh, uh, may, many of you may not know that after the war, uh, fighter command was given a monument, and its leader was, uh, was given a, uh, a night ship. And Bomber Harris got nothing, and there was no monument, because under British military ethics, the role of Bomber Command, which was simply to kill as many German civilians as they possibly could, uh, was considered unethical. It also didn't work, because Germans continued their production and their morale right up to the very end, in spite of all the bombing. And the same thing happened in Japan. Uh, when we tried terror bombing there and, uh, and burned their cities one after another. It's very well uh, known in the strategic bombing survey of the Second World War, uh, simply demonstrated that you do not spoil, uh, destroy a people's morale, often quite the opposite, uh, by random killing of civilians. Now, that may not have been bin Laden or whoever's was goal, but the point is I think he would have thought about it a lot more if he had understood just a little bit more about human history and behavior. So what I'd like to do now is give you uh, what may well be the world's shortest course in human history, just hitting some of the high points that I think are pertinent to a lot of the social problems that we uh, face today. And I want to start back at the beginning. Uh, and you know, I, one of the things that I hate to do, and I know my colleagues here in ecology and evolutionary biology hate it too, is to give some credit to the molecular geneticists. But actually, actually, this diagram, I have to give some credit to molecular geneticists because it's largely based on their work. And what it shows is that the old idea we had that chimps and gorillas and orangs were off in one group and we very special human beings were off somewhere else simply isn't the case. In fact, this split point here is maybe six million years ago. Uh, we are much more genetically in, and in time, evolutionary time, uh, related to the chimpanzees uh, than, uh, than chimps are to gorillas. Uh, when I say chimpanzees in this lecture, I'm really lumping together two different species, the chimpanzee, the common chimpanzee, and the bonobo. I have unfortunately never seen bonobos, but if we're going to emulate any of our close relatives, those of you who know about bonobos know we ought to emulate them, not the chimpanzees. <laughs> if you don't understand it, <laughs> I can see there are some bonobo fans. If you don't understand it, 
Go to the library or the bookstore and look at France, the pictures in France the Wall's book called Bonobo. But only do that if you have some interest in sex. Uh, the, uh, that's the only message in that slide. Now, the message in this slide is Ehrlich cannot make a slide that is visible at a distance, and that is perfectly correct. Unfortunately or fortunately, there's only two messages I want you to get out of this. The, uh, the split's down here, but the chimps are running off there somewhere. This, by the way, an interesting point is that there's rapid enough change going on in our picture of human beings that this is not the diagram that's in the book that was published a year ago, because since then, Kenyanthropus and Auroran have come out, and they, uh, they support a general picture of our genetic evolution that contains a, a couple of big mysteries, although there are many ideas about it. Uh, one of them is that this critter down here, almost certainly, and Artipithecus and so on, these were all upright, small-brained human beings. We got upright before we got smart. And some people say, well, you should not, you should certainly not consider them human beings, maybe chimpanzees, because they're small-brained. And I say, well, if you don't count upright, small-brained human, uh, small-brained critters as being human beings, what's the Supreme Court going to do about the president? Can you have a non-human no, non president? Doesn't seem reasonable. So the first, the first mystery is why do we stand up first, particularly when it gives us bad backs and hernias, uh, and we don't know the answer. There are many ideas, but of course I think the most basic one is it frees your hands. Uh, and in fact, that's a very important step in our genetic evolution. Another one back here, by the way, that's really critical to understanding a lot of our behavior, uh, including, for instance, our penchant to racism based on skin color, uh, is that uh, we're sight animals. And the reason we're sight animals is that back down around here, we were living in the trees. You all know that evolution goes on by natural selection. Natural selection is out reproducing your buddies. That's all there really is to it. There's some technical details, but that's what natural selection is. It turns out that the tree living of our ancestors who tried to, when they jumped to the next branch located by smell, didn't reproduce as well as the ones who looked where they were jumping. And so we got eyes in the front of the head. We're sight animals. And we used, there are other reasons, too. Uh, so then, for some reason around here, all of a sudden our brains began to grow rapidly. Uh, We'd say maybe starting, but this, we're talking down here in chimps around 400 cc brain volume. You get up here around Australopithecus, you're up to about 650. Then you get up to Homo ergaster, which used to be called Erectus even down here. You're talking 1,000. Sapiens with 1450. And Neanderthal was a little bit more. Interestingly enough, although the Neanderthals died out, uh, their brain volume in the specimens we have, and that's not saying a huge number, is slightly larger uh, than our brain volume. So a critical thing is that our brains expanded very rapidly in evolutionary time because, of course, evolutionary time is in terms of generations. Uh, and we have about a 20-year generation time. So two or three million years of rapid expansion is really quite rapid genetic evolution. There are a lot of ideas, again, about why we underwent this brain expansion. But it's interesting, for instance, that other primates that went out on the savannas like baboons have not shown that kind of ten, uh, trend. Some people think that it was only made possible when our earliest ancestors learned to get themselves more meat because brains are very, big brains are very energetically, uh, uh, they, they need a lot of energy to operate because you're growing new connections all the time and changing the chemistry all the time and neurons are always pumping uh, ions back and forth and so on. And it may have been that we just couldn't get big brains until we got a more meat. That, that's one of the ideas. There are many others. But 
in our, in our, our, our genetic evolution is kind of interesting uh, in the fact that it has these large mysteries that so far have not been totally settled to the scientific community's satisfaction. And the basic one is, A, we got to be upright before we got to be smart, and second, we got smart very suddenly and very rapidly, um, and that's not fully understood. Now, this is the slide that I called Too Bad Ku Klux Klan. Uh, around the time of Homo ergaster, human beings for the first time left our homeland, which is Africa, and spread over the Eastern Hemisphere. They didn't get to the Western Hemisphere, but a critter that we would normally have called Homo erectus. Uh, did, the, did the sound change? I did. I get the little button. There we go. We're back. I'm back with you, ladies and gentlemen, after that interruption. Uh, and they, we covered the Eastern Hemisphere. And, uh, and, we, and Homo erectus occupied, uh, for about a million years, much of the Eastern Hemisphere. And then, just about 50,000 years ago, give a little, take a little, our kind of, of human beings, Homo sapiens, burst out of Africa, occupied the rest of the uh, Eastern Hemisphere on roughly the time scale showed there, or there's some debate, and then went to the Western Hemisphere, and there's even more debate about when human beings first got to the Western Hemisphere. Uh, so one thing that I can tell you is that we're basically all Africans. The, the differences we have in things like skin color are trivial differences due to different selection pressures in uh, amount of solar radiation and so on, but we're basically all Africans. In fact, we have a very genetically uniform species. The chimpanzees with a few thousand individuals have about four times as much genetic variability as we do with six billion. We went through a big bottleneck evolutionarily back there, and we're all extremely closely genetically related. And in fact, if one small group of Bushmen here were the only surviving human beings after the next Holocaust, we'd have 80% of our genetic variability still present. So the idea that there are big, important genetic differences between human groups is just simply a non-idea. So again, too bad Ku Klux Klan, but we're not going to change their minds anyway. Uh, now, what I've been talking about so far is what happens to our genetic information, the genetic information that's stored primarily in the DNA uh, of our cells, of which we have some, but not a lot. Uh, but we have in human beings uh, a second kind of evolution, which is changes in the non-genetic information that human beings possess in their brains, in their artifacts, uh, in their CD-ROMs, in their books, and so on and so forth. Is that in, is that in uh, focus? No, we need a little focus. Again, the details are utterly trivial. I'm just going to show you a few things. I can try focusing it if, if we can't get it from up there, if I can find the focus. That's it. Uh, yeah. Well, now I'm going to throw up as my next <laughs> act. Uh, it doesn't matter. That's close enough. The one things I want you to notice here uh, are, first of all, the scale is not linear. That's 2.5 million years ago, 1.7 million years ago, 250,000, 50,000, and basically the present. And since the videotapes don't last that long, our main information has to come from things that do about our culture, and so we, it's based largely on stone tools. And the points that I want you to, to <laughs> the points that I want you to notice are very few, and that is the first stone industry shows essentially no change from 2.5 million years ago to about 1.7. That's 800,000 years of stasis. Now, that's kind of weird because, after all, remember, genetic evolution has to go on on the basis of changes in gene frequencies from generation to generation and on generational time, and in human beings, generations roughly 20 years, and so it's very slow. Cultural evolution can go on very, very rapidly. It's going on at this very moment. The store of genetic information, at least its distribution, in the human population is changing right here and now. Anything you remember from this talk 
will mean that you have generated new chemicals in your brain and probably made some new connections between neurons. And me too, because I'm watching you, and if I, my joke goes flat, I say, boy, I won't use that next time, and one of my neurons changes in some way. Uh, and not only that, we don't have to depend on passing it generation to generation. I've learned a lot from my grandchildren. They can pass it back up to previous generations. Anybody who's got grandchildren knows you learn from them all the time. I've learned from Charles Darwin and Plato. They're, I think, both dead now. Uh, and uh, our word can pass around the planet very, very rapidly. So cultural evolution obviously can go on at a breakneck pace compared to genetic evolution. And yet here we have 800,000 years of, as far as we can tell from the evidence, almost no change. Then we go over a million years, almost a million and a half years with essentially no change. These hand axes would have been about this big, and you would chop down trees with them and whatever, and then suddenly they disappear. Somebody had a bright idea. It took a million plus years, but somebody figured out if you take a smaller version of this and lash it to a stick, you have a better axe than a big hand axe. And the hand axes disappear, and you begin to get things that were clearly hafted. And that goes on. You've got another uh, uh, roughly uh, 200,000 years in there. And then comes what uh, Marshall Salins, a very famous anthropologist, called the Great Leap Forward. It's been popularized in brilliant books by Jared Diamond. But all of a sudden, things change. This is a critical point. 50,000 years ago, when we went from a cultural evolutionary animal with, with what even compared to genetic evolution, for much of it was very slow change, to a cultural revolutionary animal. At this point, suddenly, there are there's art. There's Venuses, which uh, sculpted Venuses, which have signs of, uh, of clothing on them. And there are bone needles. Uh, and there are burials, and burials with provisioning, which shows a whole new level of things. And the fame of the fabulous cave art uh, that you're all familiar with from books and so on. And that was 50,000 years ago at the Great Leap Forward. Uh, and, but then a whole series of revolutions followed that it, and in ever-decreasing uh, periods of time. 10,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution, without which we would have neither Princeton nor Stanford. Uh, and then a few thousand years after that, the writing uh, revolution, which is obviously a very critical point in cultural evolution. And then a thousand years or so after that, the printing revolution, which changed everything again and made it possible for people to extend their, their individual reach much further. And some people think we're going through another information re revolution now. There's the Industrial Revolution and then on to maybe an information revolution now. But somehow we turned from an animal that evolved culturally very slowly. And there are cultures and other animals and a little bit of evolution, but nothing remotely resembling the magnitude of it in Homo sapiens. Uh, and again, we are not fully uh, cognizant of what happened. Some people think there was a sudden genetic rewiring of the brain here for reasons that I won't go into. I find that highly unlikely, but you can't show that it's not true. Uh, but the speed of change has become absolutely incredible. Think about it. If you were a Martian anthropologist, paleoanthropologist coming here 30,000 years from now, and you excavated just two layers, one of them, say, at about 1,000 A.D., and one of them at 2,000 A.D., or even 1,500 A.D. and 2,000 A.D., you'd probably conclude that the species that had made the artifacts were extremely different species, maybe different genera, even though, of course, we know that genetically uh, they're basically absolutely identical. But look at the difference there would have been. We look at the, you know, we go from uh, wooden, wooden artifacts of various kinds and signs of lots of use of draft animals to nuclear weapons and jet aircraft uh, in a, evolutionarily a blink of the eye. So one of the one of the terrible things uh, is, in fact, we actually understand more about human genetic evolution in many ways than we do about human cultural evolution, and I will come back to that. 
Now, uh, somebody was complaining to me today about the garbage that was re that's being published often in the New York Times, you know, the newspaper where all the news that's print the fit is their motto. Uh, one clue about garbage in the New York Times, this is by Nicholas Wade, that's why I show you that. If it's written by Nicholas Wade, you can be almost certain it's garbage. But I'll let you contemplate some of the things that he said uh, while I tell you uh, what I want to talk about next. Uh, and that is, I'm going to skip a lot of interesting aspects of human evolution and just concentrate on four. I'm not going to talk to you about the wonderful, thrilling, and prurient material in my book on sex, because I know you won't be interested in that. Uh, but rather, um, I'm going to talk about a key thing that comes up all the time in policy discussions of, uh, uh, related to human natures. And I say human natures, of course, because I'm going to contend we have no single genetic nature. And in fact, all of us have different natures, and yours are being shaped right now, as is mine. Uh, and then I'm going to try and say something about the origin of ethics if I have time, but Simon has said that I absolutely have to stop after three hours, so I'm not sure I'll get there. <laughs> and maybe a little about lessons we can draw for today's world out of, out of human evolution in general and what sorts of things we might do uh, to change the direction of human evolution. But the first thing I want to talk about is the idea for which there's now a very large literature. There's actually a so-called discipline called evolutionary psychology and so on, which basically claims that our genes are determining uh, our everyday interesting behavior. That is, you were driven to come here by your selfish genes. You're going to, uh, you chose your, uh, uh, your mate because of the commands of your selfish genes. Maybe you have unselfish genes, I don't. Uh, and that, in fact, there's a book, for instance, there are about 40 books on this subject re written recently. One of the interesting ones is quite called Rape uh, by uh, a couple of biologists who claim that men are programmed to rape women to increase their fitness. Remember, out-reproduce your buddies. That's how evolution goes on. And that they're actually programmed to rape women with the highest possible reproductive value, which is the 13- and 14-year-olds. Now, many of the men in the audience are probably able to restrain themselves in this sense and not follow their selfish genes. But this stuff is in the literature. It's all over the place now. And it's pure, unadulterated hogwash. This is a good example of it. Now, how can I be so sure? How, how do geneticists know that this, the evolutionary psychologists may know a little about psychology but nothing about evolution? Well, I'll give you a quick tour uh, of the answer. Uh, I don't think I, I just leave, I can bring the lights up, will you? Because uh, uh, this, uh, for the moment, will we'll do. I'd like to be able to see you so I can evolve while you're evolving. Um, one of the reasons that we know that, uh, that our, uh, our behavior is not programmed, uh, largely programmed genetically, uh, is twin studies. Uh, the most famous twin study, actually, uh, is the, the actual, the original Siamese twin study. This was a pair uh, of men. Uh, brought over actually from Siam. <clears throat> they were joined at the, about here by a, by about a fist-sized band of tissue. Uh, and they were, of course, genetically identical. They were identical twins. And the these were Chang and Ang. There's actually been a novel written about them and a book, and a non-novel book written about their, their life. But the interesting thing about them is genetically identical. One of them was an introvert and the other was an extrovert. One was dominant, the other was submissive. They voted differently in elections. Uh, they actually managed to get married to two different women and have 15 children. This was around the middle of the, 18th, of the 19th century, so they generated a cottage industry uh, of speculation on the circumstances of their copulations, but nobody ever really found out. The novelists tried to figure it out. Uh, and I think most importantly, one was a drunk and the other was sober. Now, I'm a wino. 
I can't think of anything nicer than having a sober, identical twin, because it'd be like having a radiator on, you know. You could drink twice as much wine before you felt the effects, but no such luck. Uh, they're not unique in this respect. Uh, one of the interesting cases when I was a kid, and some of you are roughly my age, will remember the Dion quintuplets, which were five genetically identical young girls who were born to a, uh, to a family in, uh, in Canada. And the interesting thing is that the Canadian government raised them in a laboratory, essentially, put them into a place where they were under the constant observance of a, uh, observation of a psychologist, raised them in identical circumstances, and the psychologist wrote a book about them when they were about four years old and said it's already stunning how different their personalities are. Uh, another indication that they weren't being driven around by their genes, because if they would, their behavior would have been identical. But you don't have to go to the really exotic cases like Chang and Ang and the Dion quintuplets. Think of your own experience. How many times in your life have you gotten together with friends and say, isn't it interesting, Adam and Susie's kids uh, are so much alike. You know, they're just always behaving the same way. Actually, the major source of conversation is Adam and Susie's kids, two girls, one's a druggie and one's a ballerina. How come they're so different? Well, let me tell you, we have very little genetic variation in Homo sapiens. And between siblings, if they're actual, if they're the offspring of the same, uh, of the same couple, very, very little genetic variation. And yet the commonest observation among my friends, at least, in the conversations I take part in, how different kids are raised in the same family by the same parents. So anyway, that's one line of evidence that we're not being driven around uh, by our selfish genes. By the way, I should point out that you may have learned in, uh, in uh, uh, some textbook that genes are self-replicating. Um, you may have heard that term. Let me tell you they're not. If I had a bottle of DNA here and we all went away for 10 years and came back, the bottle would not have split. Uh, it would just sit there. It's no more self-replicating than this piece of paper is self-replicating. You can make this self-replicating if you put it in a Xerox machine, and you can make DNA self-replicating if you put it into the very complex uh, mechanisms of a cell. But by itself, it's not in any way self-replicating. Okay, what's another line of evidence that we're not actually being driven around by our genes? Well, we have done millions of cross-fostering experiments which bear on this. That, what's a cross-fostering experiment? Well, I'll just describe one to you in a little bit of detail. And that is where I took that picture of me dog sledding across the sea ice at Southampton Island. In the winter before, they had uh, scraped out with a bulldozer an airstrip to land airplanes on. In those days, and I flew around with them, they had taken, the Royal Canadian Air Force had taken Lancaster bombers, which are the ones that did the terror bombing of Germany at night, stripped their gun turrets off and used them for uh, aerial uh, air photo work where they were shooting air photo lines and they were controlled by, uh, by radio stations on the ground and so on. And they were working in the Arctic. And one day, one of the uh, Lancasters landed on this ice strip. The, the, the hatch underneath the pilot's compartment opens. The ladder drops and down climbs the notoriously most pompous wing commander in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Well, there's an Eskimo named Harry Gibbons standing there. And the wing co goes up to him and says, points down, and he says, how thicky icy. <laughs> and Harry, who happened to have been raised by an Oxford Don and his wife in Fort Churchill, says, as a matter of actual fact, I think it's about six feet three inches thick right here. <laughs> and it was the end of the wing co's career in the Arctic. It's a small community. They radio to each other. He couldn't go anywhere into a mess into a Hudson Bay Company. Everybody would jump up and yell, how thicky icy. Well. <laughs> The point of the story is, of course, we have millions of experiments in which 
very young children are taken away from one culture and raised by a, uh, a couple in another culture. Invariably, they grow up with the attitudes of the adoptive culture, speaking the language of the adoptive culture. For example, if, if uh, a French culture adopts a couple of kids from a German uh, at, at the age of, uh, or a kid uh, at the age of one month from a, uh, from a German family, they don't grow up speaking German, of course. They grow up speaking French. So cross-fostering uh, cross experiments show us, again, that our genes are not driving, around, driving us around in our interesting behavior. Now, uh, another uh, question which bears on the same thing. I have to ask you. I'm doing a survey. How many women in the audience, raise your hands, please, either have had or are planning to have 20 or more children? <laughs> Golly, another well, remember, evolution is out reproducing your buddies. If there's one thing we know in some sense has to be programmed into our DNA, it's out reproduce your buddies. But curiously enough, none of you seem to be, at least none of the women seem to do it. The men may be trying, but the women sure are. Uh, and uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, of course, evolution made a big mistake because it didn't program out reproduce your buddies. It programmed to get a real kick out of sex. But clever cultural animals have discovered that this can be done without reproducing. And this isn't anything new, by the way. You may think condoms are a recent invention and so on and so forth. Uh, the Egyptian records show that Egyptian women use crocodile dung suppositories as contraceptives. There's no record on how efficacious they were. My guess is they were damn efficacious. But if, <laughs> you can always turn a graduate student on a project and find out. But uh, I'm, will, I'm willing to go on first principles on that one. So. Another line of evidence that we are not being driven around by our genes, because if we were, we'd all be parents of as many children as we possibly could be, and we're not. And finally, uh, interestingly enough, Craig Venner, some of you may have seen, uh, many of you have seen the article in Science, which describes the human genome and so on. An interesting effect of that was to confirm what a very famous geneticist named Muller figured out about 1965, namely that human beings have somewhere in the order of 30,000 genes. That's give a little take a little. It might be 40,000. It might be 100,000. The basic point is that if your genes were going to program your behavior, what do they got to program? Well, your behavior mostly comes from your brain and the hormones that tend to soak it and so on. And your brains, you see, they, ha they have uh, roughly a trillion neurons. And each neuron has somewhere between 100 and 1,000 connections, synapses with other neurons. And that's where the real action is in the arrangement of those connections. And when you boil it right down, it turns out that if they're going, each gene, which just produces a protein, is going to, if it's going to control the structure of your brain and all your genes do nothing else, each gene has to program about a billion synapses. And that's a very big job. In fact, and no developmental biologist will tell you it's even remotely possible. There's no way that by changing your genetics, you're going to be able to easily change your behavior in certain patterns. And it would also be insane. Because, of course, the whole purpose of a brain is to have a highly flexible learning machine that buffers environmental change and allows you to find new ways to behave uh, when the circumstances change. So if everything were hardwired in there, uh, it would be preposterous because it would, it would defeat the entire purpose of the brain. Uh, basically, we have a gene shortage, which makes, for instance, Hitlerian dreams as a policy uh, uh, answer here, too. Uh, some people, like Hitler, have thought that the best thing to do to get the right kind of people is to do it by breeding to get the right behavior. And the answer is, even if you were silly enough to think that that was an ethical way to go, it just wouldn't work. You could breed till you're blue in the face, and you would not get the results that you want because the genetic variation isn't there. There aren't enough genes. And so 
That's a, a, a policy answer, which is a non-starter, uh, even if you didn't have any ethical considerations. A second policy consideration, by the way, which follows from it, is if you want to change human behavior, what you've got to manipulate is cultural evolution. Now, first of all, that sounds bad, and it ought to, because, of course, those of you who have read uh, uh, books like uh, Brave New World know the sorts of things that might lead to, uh, it might lead to if you felt you were going to manipulate uh, cultural evolution. Uh, the uh, uh, Hitler on one side, but Stalin was no bargain, and he was a cultural evolution manipulator on the other side. Uh, so one might say, well, we're stuck. We can't change human behavior. We shouldn't even try because it would be immoral and impossible with, uh, uh, with genetic evolution, and it would just be immoral with cultural evolution. Uh, it turns out not really to be the case. Uh, Simon is an employee of an organization dedicated to manipulating cultural evolution. So am I. So is the warden of Sing Sing Prison. Uh, in fact, it's very crystal clear that we and other human beings spend much of our life try lives trying to manipulate cultural evolution in one way or another. So in my view, and I'll come back to this, the issue is how do you do it in a democratic, humane, and open way uh, rather than the way it's done now, uh, except at Stanford and Princeton, of course, where it's always done democratically and humanely. Uh, and, uh, and I'll come back to that in, uh, uh, in a little bit. But the basic message here uh, is that if we want to change our behavior, changing our genes isn't the way to do it. Uh, a, immoral, B, impossible. And the issue of doing it culturally is a very complex one, but one that I hope people in this audience and uh, similar ones will get much more involved in. Now, I'm just going to show, if I recall correctly, one more slide to remind me to tell you some chimp stories. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about what concerns me and a lot of the rest of us a great deal, and that is the evolution of ethics, particularly ethics towards the environment, but ethics in general. Uh, one of the most interesting experiences of my life uh, was to go to Gombe Stream and do a lot of work there on butterflies, but actually I went primarily so I could do it around chimpanzees that are interesting as hell, and that is a chimpanzee. It's not a bonobo. I've never seen a bonobo in the field, uh, and uh, that's actually one of the gom famous Gombe chimps uh, that Jane Goodall uh, worked with. I think we just take the slides off now and bring the lights up because uh, I'm not going to get that far into other slides. Let's just quit the slides and uh, let me say a few things about the evolution of uh, values, ethics, and such things. Well, first of all, uh, evolutionists, if they don't have a living time sequence to work with, which you normally don't, try and they're interested in origins of things, they tend to look at closely related things. They, they substitute uh, taxonomic variation for temporal variation. And one of the things that Jane started doing uh, is trying to understand how and why chimps behaved in a natural environment and hoped that that would cast some light uh, quite uh, intelligently on, uh, on human behavior. You've got to be careful how you interpret it, but it's one place to go to try and figure out how we may have evolved certain characteristics. And one of our characteristics is that in all societies, we have, do have ethics and morals of some sort. You might not agree with the, uh, those of a different culture, but people have ethics and morals. And one of the questions is, uh, is there anything about chimps that can give us hints about where ethics and morals came from? And the answer is, in my view, and that of a lot of other biologists, is yes. Uh, there are things about chimps that can give you uh, uh, some idea of where ethics and morals come from. One of the first things is, it's hard to imagine having ethics and morals if you don't have a consciousness and realize you're an individual. In other words, if you're just some sort of automaton, think about it. How are you going to develop ethics and morals? And the answer is chimps do have some kind of consciousness and understand they're individuals. Now, how do people know that? 
Well, they know it by doing something that I've done with birds and fish, uh, and that is they do it by showing the mirrors. If you want to test and see if an organism is territorial, uh, that is, defends a given territory, one of the easiest ways is to show it a mirror. And a bird or a fish will interpret the mirror as an unknown individual of the same species and attack it. It's really quite funny to watch because if you've got a mirror underwater, you've got a fish that's going wham, 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 attacking, if it's a territorial fish, attacking the mirror, and then it'll swim off the mirror, and all of a sudden the opponent is gone, and it sort of looks dazed, and it swims around. If it, if it catches its view again, it goes right back into the attack mode, and so on. Uh, if, however, you show a mirror to a chimp, nothing like that happens. In fact, if you put, say, some paint on the back of a chimp's ear and give it a mirror, it goes like that and tries to see what happened to its ear. So there's, there are reasons to believe that chimps have some form of consciousness in our sense uh, and uh, a sense of self and so on. So that's one thing. Another thing is you can see behavior in them, for example, that one could uh, interpret as empathy, understanding, put, being able to some sense put yourself in the place of another individual. Uh, when I first got to Gombe Stream, I was, uh, uh, I was determined to be a scientist and not anthropomorphize any of their behavior or something. It lasted about two and a half minutes when one of Flo's kids got scared by a stick it thought was a snake and ran gibbering to her, and she scoops it up in her arms, cuddles it, pats it on the top of the head, and so on and so forth. So you can interpret that any way you want, but let me tell you, chimp behavior uh, is difficult to interpret and often gives you pause. I'll give you one story about pause. I don't want to go on too long. Uh, when Ann and I first came to Gombe Stream in 1970, Jane had been there for 10 years already. In that 10 years, the forest, which used to stretch just uh, 60 miles back from the shore of Lake Tanganyika, had shrunk to two miles. The chimps' habitat was greatly compressed. Whether there was a connection or not, no one will ever know, but the northern chimp group, those of you who have read Jane's 1986 book on the chimpanzees of Gombe will know, started to wipe out the southern uh, chimpanzee group. And... While we were there on one of our trips, uh, I don't remember the exact year, a female from the southern group was caught by a group of males from the northern group, and, the, and those males were being watched. Uh, and the males stomped her. She managed to scramble away, but she had a very young baby, and the baby was injured and left behind. And the male chimps picked up uh, the, the injured baby, killed it, went up in a tree, and started to eat it. Now, not, not unusual behavior for chimps in many ways. They, for instance, often hunt monkeys show, by the way, zero compassion for the monkeys they hunt and so on. They'll eat them while they're still alive without even bothering to kill them. But, and this is according to the observers, one of them said that the males seemed to think they were doing something wrong. That's interpretation. But one of the males took the baby's body and walked it two miles and left it on Jane's doorstep. I'm not even going to try and interpret that for you. Just you can contemplate it. There's an there's a epilogue to the story. Jane asked us, we were leaving the next day, if we would take the chimp baby into Dar es Salaam, where I was giving a lecture at the university, and give it to Professor Masangi, who was doing autopsies on all of the chimps that died at Gombe, so that you have some idea of the parasite loads and so on. We, of course, said yes. We took the boat to Kagoma, which is an open boat, and took about seven hours. We then stood at an airstrip while a guy flew in finally two hours late with a Cessna 210, and then the jerk flew underneath the, uh, the inversion layer in the heat to... Uh, Dar es Salaam, I get out of the airplane and Professor Masangi isn't there to meet us as advertised. His father has died. He's had to go back to his village. So I and I take a taxi into town. We end up for the first time in something like civilization in six weeks. I won't describe the conditions at Gombe Stream, but they were interesting. 
and we're getting dressed for dinner in the Dar es Salaam Hilton or equivalent, and it dawns on us that the room smells funny. <laughs> Life's darkest moment. I am getting dressed with my wife in a hotel room with a decaying dead baby chimpanzee. So we do the natural thing. We put it in the closet, shut the door. <laughs> Zero effect. Life's darkest moment is getting even darker. Well, put it out on the balcony. Try and slide the door open. It's screwed shut. So finally, I go downstairs to make a long story short, and I said to the guy at the desk, I am Professor Ehrlich, and I want to see the manager. Finally get an assistant manager and said, I have an extremely valuable biological specimen for Professor Masangi at the university, and I require 10 plastic bags uh, and a freezer to put it in. Well, I get the 10 plastic bags, but they come with the most curious bellhop in the world. It's going to show us where I couldn't get rid of them, show us where the freezer is. And so Ann and I have the world's record for rebagging dead baby chimp while keeping bodies between us and very curious bellhop. We're terrific at it if you ever have that problem. You know, I knew if I went out and threw it in the garbage pail, they'd catch me, think it was human, and I'd spend the rest of my life in Dar es Salaam prison, which I didn't want to do. And uh, it, it, we took it to a freezer. And I said to Ann, we're not having breakfast here tomorrow. Uh, sure enough, when I went back, we went back the next morning, it was gone. And we searched the whole hotel and seven stories away. This is as funny as the chimp story. We finally found it again. We don't know why it was moved. I gave it to a horrified botanist uh, at the university later that day, and that's the last I can remember. Anyway, chimps, chimps are really interesting critters. And interestingly enough, they also show signs of social attribution, which is even more down the line of... Uh, uh, of humanoid things that lead to uh, they could lead to morals. That is, they seem to understand that other individuals not only have minds and thoughts, but can have more or less information. Ch children don't pick this up till they're two or three or four. I can't remember the exact number, but it's the experiment. The experiments are sort of done like this with either chimps or children. You set up an arena where there are two human observers, and one sees where something is put, and the other doesn't. And the baby or chimp is viewing this operation. And then he asked, does the person, the chimp or baby, once the object that's hidden, does it go to the person who saw it being hidden, or do they go at random to the two people? And it turns out that they go to the, at certain age, uh, for babies and chimps very often, go to the person that they've seen, see where it went. And you can see that implies that the chimp has the idea that that human observer, one human observer, knows something that the other doesn't. So, there are signs of things that we think are, would be involved in the development of morals and ethics in chimpanzees. Uh, why don't they have, why can I say with assurance they don't have morals or ethics? That's easy. Morals and ethics are shared views about right and wrong, and the chimps have no way of sharing. The most critical thing, perhaps what some people think happened 50,000 years ago, I don't agree with that either, uh, was the development of language with syntax. If you're going to share moral ideas, you have to have language with syntax, and we are the only living species on the planet uh, that has language with syntax. No chimpanzee. Chimpanzees can learn lists of words, and they can fetch, like, you know, get phone, that sort of thing. They can do that. But they can't say, wow, if Og hadn't found that huge rock and managed to brain the mammoth and get the meat, he never would have been able to persuade Susie to mate with him. That's an idea that's No chimp can pass on that kind of idea. So we know that you can see art of, you know, features that put together in an animal that can speak uh, that, uh, and speak with, with, uh, uh, with syntax, uh, you know uh, that uh, uh, the potential is there. And we have developed uh, very uh, diverse ethical systems. Now, one of the interesting questions, there, are, there still are two major views of ethics. One is that they're basically static uh, and that they come from an, a, a separate ethical universe. It's basically a Kantian view, although that's a, uh, 
that's uh, an oversimplification, uh, but that there's some set of ethics out there and we somehow access them. Uh, and I don't believe that. I think you can see that ethics are evolving all the time. It's interesting, for example, all human beings uh, have rules about killing, uh, ethical rules about what's, when it's proper to kill or not. Uh, and so one could say, well, there's a genetic control where we're genetically programmed uh, to only have circumstances, well, you know, only kill in certain circumstances. But, of course, you look at every culture, uh, and the rules are different for every culture. Within our own culture, they vary all over the map right now. So, and you can see uh, ethics actually evolving very clearly historically. For example, if you remember your Plato and Aristotle and so on, in those days, slavery wasn't just a thing. It was a very good thing. It was a feature of civilized societies. Uh, and that view has, in many areas, gradually changed over time. Right here in Princeton, uh, if you went out 200 years ago and you're, dry, you're leading your horse around and it kept slipping and wouldn't really pull the cart, you could go get a two-by-four and beat it to death. It was your property, and you could do that. If you did that today, well, I don't know about Princeton, probably uh, you would find some, uh, some people would object to the behavior. You might, in fact, even end up in Princeton jail over it. Our attitude towards uh, the rights and uh, so on of other people and other animals and so on have been continuously evolving. They don't evolve at the same rate in the same way in all cultures, but we are having uh, ethical evolution within our society. And in fact, the whole fact that we now have a, an area of ethics called environmental ethics is a sign of such evolution. If you, in 1950, the whole idea of environmental ethics would essentially have been a non-starter. It didn't exist, uh, but now we have, uh, now we have a thriving field uh, asking really tough questions about environmental ethics. And th think about some of them. You know, how many children is it ethical to have? Is it ethical to have more than one child? In the, we're the most overpopulated nation in the world. We have, uh, we're the third in, in numbers. That is, China and India are still ahead of us in total numbers. But when you factor in what we do, that is, our consumption per person, we are far beyond them. I mean, if you, wanted to, if you wanted to save the environment and had the choice of shooting at a Chinese, an Indian, or American, you'd shoot the American immediately, if that's all you knew about them, because it would reduce the impact on the environment more, much more. So uh, is it ethical to have more than one child? Is it ethical to have more than two children? How much do we owe to future generations? This, is, uh, by the way, is a big subject in economics and has been for some time, the issues of intergenerational equity that didn't used to be uh, issues at all. Is it ethical to drive a, uh, an automobile and how far and so on? There's all kinds of issues that were non-issues 10, 20, or 30 years ago that are becoming issues um, in, uh, in environmental ethics. And uh, I, I, there's just a huge area here. Some of it polluted, I think, very badly. I mean, where there's lots of nonsensical ideas floating around, like what we need to do is go back to the Native American attitudes on the environment. You know, the, uh, the, some of you may have read Kretsch's book on the ecological Indian. Well, when you think about it, you look, for instance, at the, at the Inuit, um, they had no conservation ethic whatsoever. Uh, they thought that the game was supplied by the gods anew every year, and they did very well under that system until they began to get firearms. Used to be when you hunted, when you were an Inuit and you were hunting seal, you went out with a harpoon with a cleverly designed detachable uh, bone head because you wanted to make sure that it would come off and the shaft would flow because there were no trees and you had to make your harpoon shafts out of driftwood and that was rare. And you harpooned the seal and if you're hunting them as you often did in the spring, uh, you would get about 19 out of 20. The 20th kit would be killed and would sink before you could get it. You, the line would break or something, but they got almost all the seals they harpooned. 
Then they get enough money from hunting foxes to buy themselves Mannlicher, Schoenhauer carbines, and they began to hunt the seals by cruising around in their Peterhead boats, which they also got from the very rich returns from, from fox hunting for a while, and they'd shoot at their heads, and they'd hit them, but they'd sink 19 out of 20, roughly, because at that time of the year, there's a lot of fresh water on the top surface, and the seals would sink. And the seal populations, guess what, dove down. Fortunately, actually, from our culture, a conservation ethic has been transferred into the Inuit culture. They don't do that any longer, but they didn't have any automatic, you know, we're living with nature conservation ethic originally. Uh, and if you think about it, of course, um, I, I, I left the slide out, but when human beings hit this uh, hemisphere, they wiped out the megafauna. The entire flora and fauna of the whole Western hemisphere was dramatically changed by human hunters coming in and exterminating a very large portion of the large animals, both carnivores, which changed the balance of herbivores, and the herbivores as well, all of which affected the plants. It's an entirely different place because of the vast extermination carried out by our ancestors. So I don't think there's any genetic programming for conservation. It's like a lot of other things. It depends on the culture. It depends on what the culture has learned and what the culture is willing to learn. Now, there are a lot of things. I haven't really got time because I've got less than two hours left. But uh, I, I wanted to give you a couple examples of how thinking about things uh, and, and the way we evolved can help us understand some things. And what I'm going to concentrate on uh, is why we have so much trouble perceiving things that are extremely dangerous to us, like the buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, or in the past and still with us, the buildup of nuclear weapons, uh, or the increasing danger, uh, the deterioration of our epidemiological environment, which is tied to our population size and transport systems, and without bioterrorism, puts us enormously at threat. Uh, why is that? Why have we have so much trouble facing these threats? And I think you can see it as an evolutionary hangover, largely a genetic evolutionary hangover. There's a, uh, an experiment you can do to see this. Uh, there are a couple experiments. I'll, try, I'll tell you how to do one and show you another. Get yourself a video camera and go anywhere with, a, let's say, a large room like this and start filming and move the camera like this. Okay. Then go like this. Now, when you're going like do this right now. Do it. Okay, your head's moving, the room's standing still. If, for example, a tiger should appear here, uh, I'd know what to do instantaneously. I'd jump behind Simon, hopefully the tiger would eat him, right? You know, and I'd see it even if my head was moving. I'd be attracted to this tiger. If, however, you look at the videotape going like that, all you do is get sick. You can't see anything in it. You know, some of you may have made this mistake the first time you tried to make a movie. You thought the camera moved, uh, and actually it's the scene that moves, and you've got to screw the camera down tight to get a decent movie. Well, why is that? Well, it's because our inner ear and some proprioceptors in our neck tell us exactly where our head is at a given time. And you do most of your seeing with your brain, not with your eyes. You can't actually see what you see with your eyes. In fact, if you're blind at birth, uh, you do, they do this with cats, but the same thing happens with human beings. And you restore sight, say, at the age of 10, can't see. The brain is the only organ that develops only satisfactorily if it has the appropriate inputs from the environment, another sign that it's not genetically programmed. And your brain is programmed to, when you move, hold the environment steady. It keeps the environmental backdrop steady because the kind of threats that threatened our species and our ancestors for most of our existence, of course, 
where the lion or tiger or leopard or whatever that was going to leap out at you. We have that ability, swerving cars. We, the, the number of lions that kill people on Princeton campus are minimal this year. But, but the number of times you might get killed by having a car swerve at you are probably pretty frequent, and you know exactly what to do without thinking about it. The problem is that the biggest threats to our lives now aren't the lions and tigers. They're changes in that background that we actually evolved to hold constant. Because if Australopithecus was changing the climate, A, it couldn't change it, but B, if it was, there's nothing it could do about it. And so there was no reason for evolution to, to build in the ability to detect changes on a decadal scale in the environmental backdrop, which is exactly what we're faced with, whether it's the gradual increase in the number of weapons, the gradual building of CO2, the gradual increase of hormone-mimicking chemicals in our environment, and so on. We're trained to keep, we're evolved to keep the stuff that isn't changing in the background constant and not notice changes. And one of the best examples is habituation. When you came in here, you went to your seat and you went through a very complex series of neuromuscular uh, uh, actions and you sat down and when your butt hit the seat, you got the message from your butt which said, butt in seat, and then you settled back to see what this jackass was going to tell you, right? And until I mentioned to, it that to you now, you didn't realize that the butt-in-seat message is still coming. Right now, you can all feel it. I guarantee you, in two or three minutes, you won't feel it again because you tune it out. It's like the air conditioner. You hear it come on, but then it's a constant, relatively constant background stimulus, and you don't pay any attention to it. So that's just one of many examples, uh, like being sight animals. If you, we could get into issues of how being sight animals changes our behavior towards everything from, uh, from race to abortion. But uh, the basic principles are there. If you understand where we're coming from, at least it'll give you a better shot at figuring out what we're doing and what we might do about it. Well, the one thing that I'd like to urge you to do about it, the thing that we can do uh, to, I think, improve our chances greatly, and that is within our capabilities, particularly uh, with uh, uh, today's communications, uh, is to undergo what Bob Ornstein and I called conscious evolution. That is jack up our efforts uh, to uh, control our cultural evolution in an open and democratic way, get the discussion going big time. And I'm happy to say, of course, we've done lots of things in the past. Moral entrepreneurs have always been with us. We have a very different world today because of Martin Luther King, for example, and he was a pusher of a certain kind of cultural evolution. But there are some better examples today, I think, of the kind of open fora I think we need to discuss, for example, the many ethical issues uh, that face our society. Uh, for instance, as many of you, just to give you an example, a simple example from biomedical uh, research, we are now able to keep premature babies alive earlier and earlier and earlier when they're born. The younger and younger babies we can keep alive. At the same time, the social costs of keeping them alive to the parents or society or whoever pays get higher and higher and higher, and their chances of a satisfactory life get lower and lower and lower. And one of the ethical issues that we're not facing right now is uh, although we're starting to talk about it in, in, uh, in various ways, is where should you draw the line? It's going to be very soon that you're going to be able to keep a zygote alive, that is the fused uh, sperm and egg cell, or produce a human being out of a cell uh, that's scraped from the inside of your cheek. Are you going to define those uh, individuals that say a zygote as a human being? Uh, that has a very many profound consequences if you do so. There's no saving this by having the long debate about when life begins. Biologically, sperm and eggs are every bit as much, every bit as much human life as diploid individuals like us. If we were mosses, the, the moss individual only has one set of chromosomes, and it's the tiny little propagules that are the equivalent of the sperm and eggs uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, are the, the reproductive parts. 
And so the fact that we're diploid and the sperm and eggs are haploid doesn't make them any less human life. So we have a problem of how we're going to answer that kind of question. And it's not a scientific question. It's a question that can only be answered by a sound social discussion in which the concerned parties and the media and all get in there and actually talk about what we're going to do. There are some examples. The Internet Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is at least a start, for example. A big issue for human beings, whether they realize it or not, is what is going to be, how much climate change are we going to get, what are its effects going to be, and what should we do to ameliorate them? Uh, and I don't even want to talk about the details, although, but this has been, there's an organization that consists of scientists, virtually every scientist with competence in uh, atmospheric physics and chemistry, and uh, representatives of all the industries that are involved in fossil fuels and so on, and the governments of the world, and in totally open fora, they discuss this stuff and about every five years put out a report that is available to everybody. There's nothing secret about it. In my view, there aren't enough ethicists and other people involved, but it's an example of how you can put together a forum to look at a generalized human problem with lots and lots of ethical issues in it and lots of lots of uh, uncertainty, and almost all these things have uncertainty, and discuss them in a way that hopefully uh, people can learn to accept the answers as the best we're going to get as a society and take some kind uh, of action on them. There are other examples. We're having a millennium assessment now, which is going to try and do the same thing for the ecosystem services that are absolutely essential uh, to, uh, uh, to our society. I think that's a, a cheery sign. Uh, we have had an increased uh, involvement of the religious community in environmental ethics, which I think is a cheery sign. The Montreal Protocol, uh, which solved a problem which could have basically wiped us out, that is the ozone depletion problem. Remember, we didn't have life on land until about 450 million years ago when organisms in the ocean produced enough oxygen to have an ozone layer. When I was a kid, a graduate student, we went out to roadhouses uh, for dates in Lawrence, Kansas. The seats in the, uh, in the toilets had ultraviolet sterilizers on them. And maybe Some of you may be old enough to remember that technology, but we almost turned the planet back into the equivalent of living on a toilet seat with an ultraviolet sterilizer above us, and we only would have survived underwater. Not a clever act. The Montreal Protocol was a result of the human community getting together and saying, this is too dangerous, we're going to fix it. And, uh, and in all probability, they have fixed it. Uh, I want to finish on a really cheery note. Uh, we've, done a, <laughs> we've done a lot in the last 30 or 40 years to bring in population, resource, environment, war-type issues to the forefront, discuss them, do things about them, and so on. If it weren't for the fact that the system is running even faster in the other direction, I would say we've done a wonderful job in terms of human history and so on. The fact that, that we have come so far in such a short time is really cheering. Uh, when I was a kid, look at, look at race relations. When I was a kid, there was constant lynching down south. People were grabbing pieces of corpses and saving them for souvenirs. You could mail through the U.S. mail hideous, grotesque photographs of lynchings. That's pretty much stopped. There still are bad incidents. But I can remember the discussions when Jackie Robinson broke in with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Was it possible for a black to play professional uh, uh, athletics? The only black athletes of any kind in, back in the 1930s and 40s were Joe, was Joe Lewis, prize fighters. And when Joe Lewis was the champion, heavyweight champion of the world and a brilliant fighter, the newspapers would openly publish things about who's the white hope, what's the white man who's going to beat him. Things have changed very dramatically, and they changed with desegregation and so on in a matter of a decade or so. When the time was ripe and some moral entrepreneurs like Harry Truman got in there and, and Martin Luther King, things changed very rapidly. When I first got into the population business, I would told it would be 
at least the 21st century if the government got behind it before there'd be replacement reproduction in the United States. That is, each woman being replaced by just one more in the next generation. It happened in 1972. It happened very rapidly when the time was ripe. And, of course, the best example for the younger people in the room are if I'd been here 15 years ago and said to you, in 15 years the Soviet Union will be gone, communism will have disappeared from most of the planet, uh, the whole place will be transformed, you'd have thought, boy, what did he smoke on the way in? Nobody foresaw that. The point is we don't understand an aspect of cultural evolution, and that is, for some reason, when the time is right, the rate can go up at an incredible rate, but we don't understand what makes the time right. Well, it seems to me that if we want a decent world for our children, and I don't think we can get a utopia or our grandchildren, uh, that it's entirely possible, but we're only going to do it if a lot of us spend a lot of our effort trying to ripen the time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, Paul was uh, willing to take some questions from the audience. Uh, those of you who rise to speak, please speak uh, loudly. I don't know if there are microphones uh, out there or not, and Paul will repeat the question if necessary. So we'll take a few questions. Or go home and have a drink. I mean, it's. Shoot. Sociobiology. Right. How does that fit into your description? In particular, some of the thesis proposed in there about the shared value, it, it, has, it did not relate to language. Why you are saying that also shared values it originated from language? And, uh, the question is, A, about sociobiology and whether... I, I, may have, I may have given the wrong impression. You say the sociobiologists don't think you can share values without language. In other words, all I'm saying, by definition, ethics and morals are shared values, and you have to have some way of sharing them, and so only organisms with language can share them. Sociobiology basically is an attempt to look at uh, the, the different effects of genetics and uh, environment on various, on various behaviors, not just in human beings. In fact, the vast majority of sociobiologists work on other organisms, and it's a field that's, uh, that's still quite active. There are journals, and uh, uh, the views in the field have changed a lot over the last 25 years as they've learned things. So it's, uh, it's an active field of research. Is that a fair response? Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I don't think that no, nobody has suggested that you, can, that you can have ethics without having a way of sharing the ethics. Uh, there are, the, the closest you come to uh, the kind of communication human beings have in other animals are things like vervet monkeys being able to use different alarm calls to signal it's a hawk or it's a, uh, or it's a snake and so on. But as far as discussing ethical issues, there were no peaceniks among the, the chimps that wiped out the other chimps. They couldn't discuss what they were doing. They can't plan in the way uh, we can. Language is I'll harangue you just a little bit more. Language, I think, is the single thing about human beings that we take most for granted that's almost miraculous. Uh, for example, one of the reasons chimps don't have language, if the, if the people doing these studies are correct, and it's not my area of expertise, is the same reason they can't make stone tools or throw straight. 
Um, one of the things that primates love to do is sling feces. The only thing that saves us zoo growers most of the time is they got lousy coordination. And the reason is they do not have the neuromuscular ability to do the fine movements that would allow, that allows human beings to throw strikes, to make stone tools. Making stone tools is difficult. It's not that the chimps don't understand the use of stone tools. They learn, for example, to take a piece of flint, smash it on the floor, pick up a sharp piece of it, and cut a rope to open a box to get food. So they clearly understand the use of stone tools, but they haven't got the hand-eye coordination that will allow them to do the delicate things that human beings can learn to do to make stone tools. And it's the same thing with the tongue. My, right now, my tongue is doing incredible things without me even thinking about it. And your brain is doing incredible things. That, that is, you think you're hearing words, but I'm not speaking words. If you looked at a, a sonograph of what I'm doing, you'd have a continuous stream. It's your brain that's breaking it down into words. If you don't believe it, listen to somebody speaking rapidly in a language you know nothing about, and you won't hear words. Uh, so there's a neuromuscular difference between us and chimpanzees, and that's the sort of thing sociobiologists look at, that, that really constrains us tremendously on developing more. Hard to think that a, a difference in our ability to, to wag our tongues at the right rate and so on uh, is the, maybe the thing that keeps chimps from having morals, and we have morals. Well, my main, my main comment would be, of course, yeah. oh, sorry, yeah, repeat the question. Uh, things in these new 
That's, that's entirely possible. In other words, you don't have to go that far to get to see where the – I mean, I don't know the answer. Maybe someday yes, maybe someday no, but you don't have to go that far. There's a huge argument uh, in neurology and philosophy and so on about whether we're capable of understanding our own consciousness. In other words, there's a, there's a book by Dan Dennett, who's a very bright guy, called Understanding Consciousness. I read it from cover to cover, and I didn't learn a thing about understanding consciousness, how you become conscious – as a result of the, uh, of the uh, uh, physico-chemical changes in your neurons is an incredible mystery, much closer to home than what we'll be doing on the other thing. There's no guarantee that we evolved to understand everything, and I, have, I, I tend to think we probably didn't, but it's very, very dangerous for scientists to say what we will or won't be able to do in the future because there are a lot of scientists with uh, uh, mud on their reputations for having, uh, for having done that sort of thing. But that's, what you say is not at all outlandish, and it may very well be true. There, you know, it's like trying to understand what happened if there, if there was a Big Bang, which most people think so. What was there before a Big Bang? It's a, an interesting Well, uh, he, he got a long way, though, further than most, yeah. Last question. Just to clarify, understanding, you don't think that there's no behavior that's all like No, but it's all right. I love that we prosperity. I, I, first of all, your, the answer to your first question is correct. Obviously, I think that, among other things, and probably most importantly, our behavior has been very much modified uh, by our genetics in becoming sight animals and developing this very large, flexible brain and so on and so forth. And some quite specific behavior, obviously, to eat, uh, sex drive, so on and so forth. Uh, what I, if, if you remember, I think I said, I might have your your everyday interesting behavior. The fact that human beings all eat is not, would not, I would not put that into the everyday interesting behavior thing. If you wanted to go into the everyday interesting behavior area where my personal guess is that something that's important to all of us is, by the way, you cannot separate genes and environments. It's a false dichotomy, but for, the, for, but for government work it'll do tonight. Uh, but if there's one place where, our, where we have a lot of genetic influence, it's every human society has a kinship system. And interestingly enough, the kinship system, that is, you know, knowing who your relatives are, matches very closely on the actual genetic relatedness. It's very hard to come up with a purely cultural reason that we would define kin uh, on the basis of which are essentially our genetic relatives without there being some considerable genetic involvement uh, in our ability and our fascination with kin. And one of and. To finish it off, let me just say, I think our, one of our biggest problems today can be expressed fairly simply, again, much too broad, in that we are genetically and culturally a small group animal for the vast majority of our history. Indeed, for many humans up to a very recent time, uh, we live with people of this, in the same culture, with the same skin color, uh, with the same attitudes, with the, uh, and who are all our relatives. Um, one of the advantages the Eskimos had in those days, in the early days, uh, and, and other people of their sort over me or you, is that they understood they were the repositories of almost their entire culture. 
where, of course, for us, the culture has grown so large that if we have only a small, even getting a small fraction of it requires a huge effort and continuous attention. So we are a small group animal that suddenly, suddenly in historic time, now has got a gigantic group and has become the dominant animal on the planet and is changing our planet in ways that previously only geological, geological forces could. And that is, I think, a lot of our problem. We are struggling right now to learn how to deal with this diversity that we have within this gigantic group when we're face-to-face -face with each other rather than scattered around and only dealing with our relatives who have our attitudes. And it's a major, major problem. Thank you. You've been very attentive. Don't let me forget to get my slides back.